Good morning. And uh, it's very good to be with you this morning, and it is very good to have all of you back, those of you that are here. Um, if you'll join me this morning, we're going to be reading from the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 19 and chapter 20. If I had to pick a list of Bible books from my favorite to not necessarily least favorite, but the one I am least likely to voluntarily engage with, uh, Revelation would would occupy that honorable spot. (laughs) Um, And I take great comfort in that I am not the only one that feels this way. The early church did not know what to do with this book either. You know, you get Peter, and you're like, be humble, be kind. And you get Revelation, and then there's a dragon, and the angels pour out a ball, and there's these guys with eyeballs in their armpits, you know? Yeah, but there's actually a really good example of a very Jewish style of literature called apocalyptic literature. And apocalypse, in, in our modern usage, we think of an apocalypse as like a big ending of something. You know, it's, oh, it's apocalyptic. But really all apocalypse means is things that are revealed. And the book of Revelation is God revealing what's going to happen. We've talked earlier about how this, it starts out as, as this is a letter to seven churches in what will become the, what is at this time and will become the Bible belt of the church in, in Turkey uh, that are go, going through a period of persecution and they need comforting and encouraging, and, and this is what God gives them. God's ways are not our ways. Like I say, if I were undergoing persecution, maybe the first thing I wanted to hear wouldn't be about a goat or a, a, a calf with wings and eyeballs in its armpits. It just, I'm not immediately encouraged by that message, but it is, it is an encouraging message. Um, and, and these two chapters that we're about to look at are, are encouraging chapters, although at first read they might seem a little grim. So if you join me, Revelation chapter 19. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory belo- and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The twenty-four elders and four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And added, These are the true words of God. At this, I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. 
Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider was called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but him, he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried, in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider and the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed signs on his behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider and of the horse, on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God, and Christ will reign with them for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In a number there, like the sand on the seashore, they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence. And there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. The word of the Lord. Well, that's a bundle of happiness. But there's a setting here. There's, there's something going on that's been actually talked about all through the Bible. 
we live in a world that's not the way it was supposed to be. We believe, if we believe Scripture, we believe that God originally created a good and wonderful creation that he intended to share in fellowship with us. But that very early on, a spiritual force came and deceived our ancestors. And as a result of their following this, this serpent, death and estrangement came into creation. And we were estranged from God and from one another, and everything has gone downhill from there. And we've looked all through the Bible at God's plan of redemption and God's choosing a family to work redemption through and from that family making a nation. And this, this is the culmination of all that. Throughout history, one of the most prevalent cries of God's people is, how long? How long, God? When Egypt was in Israel, I mean, when Israel was in Egypt, oh, wait, there's a reversal of fortune. Um, when Israel was in Egypt, they, were, they suffered and they cried out to the Lord. When Israel was in exile in Babylon, they cried out to the Lord. In our own day, we can utter this same cry when we see yet another mass shooting. When we see people being cruel to each other, we want to say, how long, God? How long? And it can be very tempting to just think this is the way it's always been. It will always be like this. But God says, no, that's not the case. In uh, 2 Peter you know, chapter 3, Peter says, And you must understand, in the last days scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. And they'll say, When is this coming? He promised. For since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. That's how people look at it. It's, you know, you're, you're believing fairy tales. It's always been going on like this. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So yes, people are scoffing. People are saying, when's this going to happen? It's always been like this. It'll always be like this. But that's not God's perspective. God is bringing it to judgment. But also says that God isn't slow the way we think of slowness, but he wants to give people scope to repent. And in Matthew, Jesus said, you know, who is the faithful and wise servant who the master puts in charge of his servants of his household to give them their food at their proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come at a day when he does not expect him, at an hour he, was not, he is not aware of, and he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites, where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now that last picture is especially good because it talks about him taking what he was given to take care of the other servants with and spending it on, on himself. Well, at the beginning of this, we're, we're given the scene of praise at the destruction of the, prost, the great prostitute. Well, the great prostitute that's being talked about here is Babylon in the book of Revelation. And Babylon kind of stands in for all 
the worldly systems that operate that way. At the time this letter was written, its recipients would have seen it as Rome. But all these things are archetypes, so they not only stand for one thing, but they stand for that kind of system, that way of doing things. And it's interesting that they call Babylon the great prostitute because the crime there is taking something that God created as good and devouring it for your own sustenance and your own increase. That is one of the primal sins of man, is we devour each other. We don't look at each other. We don't value each other as image bearers of God. We see the people around us in terms of what we can get to advance ourselves and to build our kingdom, to build our wealth. This is a system that takes that to the utmost. We can see it all around us in any time. You will see people that view other people primarily as a means to advance their own agenda or as a source of profit. When you have... I, I, I kind of dislike pointing a finger directly at something in contemporary times because it's... It's, you know, sins, sins in all our hearts. But if you have, say, a life-saving medication and you control the major source of it and your cost of producing it has not gone up, but you decide because you know that people will die if they don't get it, there's nothing stopping you from increasing the price and you increase the price. That's this. That is devouring somebody else for your own advancement. That is this system, and it is easy to fall into this system. When I first became a Christian, and I've, I've said this before, there was a lot of speculation about where we were in, in biblical prophecy and end times, and a lot of concern to, to know what was what, you know, which nations are which. And that's really not the point here. The point is these types of things are always wrong. You know, there's, there was great concern to identify the Antichrist. Where's the Antichrist come from, you know, going to come from? Well, John, who writes this, also wrote the, you know, the letters of John. And in there, where he talks about the spirit of Antichrist, he goes, oh, by the way, many Antichrists have already come. Well, if you're looking, trying to figure out who the Antichrist is, it's very easy to just miss the Antichrists that are passing through your life all the time. And uh, the way you identify them is not the way sometimes people have thought you do. It's, it's how they treat other people. God, over and over, brings you back to, do you love me? Do you love the people around you? Do you love the people I made? It? How can you say you love me if you don't love the people around you? And he expects us to extend that love even to our enemies. And if you're not doing that, you might be veering a little from the path. And you can do it while remaining outwardly pious. You know, people, in, in, it is not unique to one nation at all. There has always been the cry of, ah, they're taking God out of X and such. You know, we're taking God out of, and they're very concerned with getting the name of God back into something. And that's, that's happened in many, many civilizations. But what good does it do you to have that name of God exalted if you don't actually exalt the character of God and the things that he says are important to him? 
Jesus lays that out and he says, hey, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And he's quoting the prophet Isaiah, who said that to Israel. He said, look, you guys honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. So this Babylon, this is a system built on that. And the rejoicing here is because God's judgment has come on that system. Now, what's interesting is that Revelation up to this point, there's been just judgment after judgment after judgment. There have been seven seals with judgment, seven bowls with judgment, seven trumpets with judgment. And the whole purpose of all those judgments was to get people to repent, was to shake people up and go, hey, this isn't how you're supposed to be. And God makes this last plea before he destroys Babylon. He says, come out of her, my people, because his judgment is against the system. His his judgment is not intended to be against the people. It's intended to be against the system. But if that is where you dwell, if you don't come out of Babylon when Babylon is destroyed, imagine if uh, Lot and his family had said, when the angels came to him, said, nah, you know, we really like staying in Sodom. You know, that judgment wasn't intended for him. It was intended for Sodom. But if he had stayed, he would have been destroyed with it. And that's why God is appealing to his people, come out of her, my people. Come out of Babylon. Come out of this system. But some don't, and there is this judgment. And then there is praise to God because he has made this judgment. And then we come to this scene, we come to the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's something we are promised. That one day God and his church, Jesus and his church, will be one. They will be wed. And I love the picture of a wedding feast. Back home, one of the big traditions... Um, in the South, many traditions are around eating. And one of the big traditions after church on Sunday was we would all get together and we would go and we would descend like locusts on some poor restaurant in town and just have a massive table with everybody around it and just just really having a good time. And um, because I went to a charismatic church and uh, our, our sermons tended to be long-winded, um, we, we never beat the Baptists to the restaurants. And so, you know, we, we always just kind of had to find our own place. But you would have these great, these great times where you'd just be together with your family and your friends. You would just have come from a wonderful service and you would be eating together. And that, in the middle of all this judgment and destruction, you have this, you have this beautiful feast. God prepares a table in the midst of your enemies. It's like no matter what's going on in the world, it doesn't derail God's plans. We can celebrate and enjoy togetherness with God, even in the midst of all all this. And I love, the bride has made herself ready. Fine, bright, and clean linen was given to her to wear. It was given to her. And it says this is the righteous acts of God's holy people. I love this because it's like, God gives us the, the good things to do. We don't have to do them in our own strength. God prepared, we're God's workmanship, prepared in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared ahead of time for us. Love this picture. And then after this, we get this, this battle. And he sees heaven standing open. And what this means is there's no longer that veil between heaven and earth. Earth is fully seen by heaven and everybody on heaven Everybody on earth sees heaven now. And this rider comes down with a sword coming out of his mouth. 
and he's in bloody robes. Battle hasn't started yet, and his robes are bloody. It's because this is Jesus, and what established his victory was his own sacrifice. So before this battle even starts, he's already won. And his weapon, this isn't, this isn't like a battle of force and everything. This is just truth and justice. His weapon is truth and justice. But it's sad because this army that follows the beast, they're killed by that. If you have so bound up your way of life with falseness, with dishonor, with corruption, the truth will destroy you. Everything you have will be destroyed and the birds will come and feed on your corpse. That's kind of a a retribution. You'll see a lot of unwinding of the curse as we go throughout throughout, um, the book of Revelation. And there's this notion that creation itself is coming and, and taking back parts of what have been misappropriated. So you have Jesus coming and establishing truth and justice. And people, some people are so bound up with lies that that's death to them. Now there's a lot here. I'm going to skip over some of it. There's probably a lot that could be said over Satan being imprisoned for a thousand years and and what that might symbolize. I I hope you'll give me grace as I just skip right to final judgment Um, because that, that is something I really want to address. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. This is God himself. And before him, yeah, everything, everything flees. And it doesn't just say the evil. This is is like the presence of God so unfiltered that everything else is driven away. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which was the book of life. The dead were judged according to what was done, what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, the lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. The thing here is there's two different things going on. First of all, there's these books opened up, and we're judged according to what's written in the books. These are the books. This is the record of our lives. We write our own stories as we go through life. The way we live our life shapes our character. It shapes who we are. Well, there's going to come a time when that is fully revealed. People used to use this. Uh, It was very popular to preach this in a way to inspire guilt to try and get people to be better. One day, oh, everybody's going to see what you did. You better, you better be careful because one day, man, that whole book, all your deeds is going to be read out. But remember, this is undoing the curse. One of the first things that happened in the curse, when, when Adam and Eve uh, gave in to the serpent and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is they recognized they were naked. They saw their vulnerabilities. 
and their shortcomings. They wanted to hide them from each other. Everything that's happening here is reversing the curse and preparing God, God's restoration and God's renewal. So there's two separate things going on here. You're judged according to the books, yep. And then, if your name's written in the book of life, you're not thrown into the lake of fire. That is entirely separate from the judgment on your life. Why would that be? Why would, why would we do that? The world has gone through, the 90s were a time of tremendous turmoil. Um, most of you know it. Some of you were in school and probably weren't paying attention. Um, but it was time of tremendous turmoil. You know, you had the, the Iron Curtain fell. You know, and the, and the power balance that had existed for the last 50 years kind of crumbled. Well, one of the changes um, was, was more liberty in many different parts of the world. One of the parts of the world that happened in was South Africa. Now, most of Africa had been, for a long time, divided between various European powers as, as colonial areas. And um, as those areas gained their independence, there were consequences. South Africa was a little different um, in that, A, it had been settled much earlier than a lot of other places. The Dutch got there in the 1600s. And they actually moved into parts of South Africa before some of the tribes moving down from the north moved in. So they were like there before the, Zulu, the ancestors of the Zulus. It's a really complicated situation. It's a very, very hard situation to untie. In other colonial countries, other countries that had had a minority white rulership. When that was ended, there was usually a bloodbath. There was usually civil war and chaos. That didn't happen in South Africa. South Africa ended, it had this system called apartheid, which had been in, instituted in the 40s, which segregated the different blacks and white peoples from each other and limited what they could do. And it enforced white minority rule. But that system was dismantled in 1995. Now, before it was dismantled, there'd been a lot of violence. There'd been terrorists kidnapping uh, African families, kidnapping uh, white, white farmers and them and murdering them. Uh, the white secret police randomly grabbing uh, blacks and taking them into secret prisons never to be seen again. There were a lot of festering wounds, more than in a lot of other places. This could have, and by all by everybody's expectations, should have turned into a bloodbath. But instead, something happened, and it happened because there were people that were saturated in the gospel there. One of them was Bishop Desmond Tutu. They created something called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission because they knew you could not heal something until it was admitted. So they had this commission, and people would go before the commission and tell their stories, both the victims and the victimizers. And then they would ask for amnesty. And it would be like, okay, we're going to go forward from this. We're not going to indulge in retribution and vengeance, but everything's going to be known because until it's known, we can't be healed. Well, that's kind of what's going on here. Everybody's story will be fully known, but it will be okay. This is the reversal of that nakedness in the garden. This is... Everybody knows your worst things about you and you know the worst things about them and you can all see how you were all damaged and hurt by the system you've been living in. 
And once that's all acknowledged, once we're not hiding, once we're not wearing masks, we can go forward to what's coming next. Because God is redeeming everything. Paul laid it out well. He said, God was in Christ reconciling all things to himself. More things than we can think of. So yes, this is a time of judgment, but it is judgment on the old system, the system that we instituted when we decided to try and establish good and evil for ourselves instead of God. And Satan, Satan cast into the, into the uh, lake of fire, the dragon, that dragon is the snake of Genesis grown up. And he is thrown into the lake. And death is thrown into the lake of fire. Remember, death was a result of that choice. God told them, he said, in the day you eat of that fruit, you'll you'll surely die. Well, death was a consequence of the fall. And now death is destroyed. So God is taking away all the sting, all the pain, all the suffering that we brought into creation by our poor choices. And he is setting the stage for what comes next. Now, because God has done that, and because...